podcast one production. Jenny Cooney has been a part of Hollywood for 30 years, reporting on all the Aussie stars, from Hoags to the Hemsworths, Hugh Jackman, Nicole Kidman, Margot Robbie and beyond. This is Aussies in Hollywood. Even though you might not recognise his name, you've definitely seen Lee Smith on the credits of some of the biggest movies in the world. Lee worked first as a sound editor and then as a film editor. He won his first Oscar earlier this year as editor of the movie Dunkirk, but that was actually his third Oscar nomination, having previously been nominated for Master and Commander and The Dark Knight. Lee's trusted among film giants like Peter Weir and Christopher Nolan, having worked on seven films with each of them, from Weir's The Truman Show and The Way Back to Nolan's Interstellar and Inception, and his other credits include the James Bond movie Spectre, X-Men First Class and Suicide Squad. I caught up with Lee on the 20th Century Fox lot where he's busy editing the upcoming X-Men movie Dark Phoenix, and we talked about how that Aussie work ethic helped him along the way. Here's Lee. I just want to set the picture up here where we are. This is such a cool office on the Fox lot. I don't know about you, but even all these years later, I still get kind of excited when you drive onto a, a Hollywood movie lot. Yeah, it's true. It's uh, all of the lots that I work on. It's They're like little cities and uh, having come from Australia where you're sort of working in strange little suburban areas or, or maybe on the Fox lot as it eventually became. But these, you know, Warner Brothers and Universal and Fox, Disney... You know, they are like mini cities. They're kind of, you know, it's like a campus effect. So it is kind of cool. And, of course, because you've got all the studios and the DI suites and the mixing rooms, you know, you it's kind of a one-stop shop. You don't have to leave the lot if you don't want to. But, of course, most of the films that I work on, we don't shoot in L.A. We shoot somewhere in the world So and then come back. But, yeah, they're cool. So you're working on uh, the X-Men, the next X-Men Phoenix, is that the name of it? Dark Phoenix. Dark Phoenix, which is out in 2019. And you have uh, hundreds of little pictures on walls everywhere and very large uh, computer screens here, some posters around. Um, So this is where the magic happens. So they say. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I've got uh, the board you're referring to has a still frame from each scene in the movie. Because we rearrange scenes so regularly and try different things, we do tend to, uh, you know, you can get a little bit lost and if you look at the board, you can sort of track what you're doing through the board and you can put deleted scenes down the bottom and have a look at those. I actually find the directors use those boards more than I do, probably because you're working on such instant access machinery now with the avids and non-linear editing that it really takes no time to pop a reel up and figure out where you are so and the rest of them are just artworks from the shoot that uh the art department gave me and uh yeah some very big monitors and some big speakers to impress producers (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, most people think they know what an, a film editor does, but maybe you could explain it in your own language because I think that when people see a movie and they know the director's name on is, is on it, they don't realise what a collaboration the final cut of a film is. So 
What is an editor? Well, the interesting thing for a lot of people is they wonder when you start on a film. Like, do you start when they finished filming? Well, you don't. As a feature film editor, I'm normally on location like a week before the shoot starts. And even then I've collaborated on reading the script and discussing the script and perhaps giving notes about things that I did or didn't get in the script. Then when I start, your primary job is to keep what's called up to camera. And staying up to camera means that you're editing as fast as they can shoot. What you're actually doing is, of course, not fine-cutting the film, but you're making sure that the mechanics of the film are working, that you have all the shots and the coverage that you need because at between three and $450,000 a day shooting, if you make a mistake and have to send them back to a location, it's a very expensive mistake. And also if whilst you're watching it, if it just doesn't make sense or there's something that you pick up, you know, you need to discuss that, show the director and, and so you're kind of an insurance policy. With that comes a lot of responsibility because, you know, at the other end, when the film, when you're in post-production, you know, if you can't make the film make sense, you should have been able to have figured that out while you were shooting. Now, having said that, obviously, if the film requires new scenes, new elements, for example, then that has to happen. And so then you go through the shoots side of things where you're watching what was being shot generally every night with the director and the cinematographer and other heads of departments. Then you get the what's called the director's cut, which is normally about contractually about 10 weeks from end of principal photography. And then you're obliged to then show that cut to whoever's paid for the film, which is in the studio system, the producers and the studio heads. And then uh, everyone has a discussion about, you know, is the film meeting their expectations? You have another round of changes and then you enter the uh, test screening phase where audiences see the film and sometimes that can be quite uh, eye-opening. <laughs> sometimes in good ways and sometimes in bad. You know, things can be found that you weren't expecting. Uh, doesn't happen often but, but there's been some, you know, quite interesting things that say an audience will find funny but it's not supposed to be funny. Can you think of any exact examples going back a while? Interestingly, uh, I worked on a film for Peter Weir called Dead Poets Society and there was a sequence where one of the characters learned that one of his friends, these were young guys, committed suicide. And, of course, that news was devastating to this group of friends. And when one particular one found out, they walked out of the school environment into the snow and he fell on his knees and, and threw up. And then the way we'd edited it, he fell forward. Now, none of us, we'd watched the film many, many times with Peter and many, many of us. Uh, and we screened it uh, for an American audience. And to our great surprise, when he fell forward, people thought he fell into his own puke. And they laughed. We took the film back. Two days later, we had another screening. I re-edited that particular moment so there was no confusion about what happened because it was just, again, it was more a perception and the scene played perfectly. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't anything other than maybe a 
sniffles and wiping of tears away. Which is what we you should be hearing at that point in that movie. And there are many other little things, you know, confusions, things that I think when you're close to a film and you've been working on a script with the director and the producers, everyone's very close to the film. You know, there's a million things to do. As Chris Nolan always tells me, there's a thousand ways to cut a scene but only one correct way. His way? No, not necessarily his way. He's looking at me going, yeah, you better get it right. Um, but, yes, he's he, he has an incredibly uh, strong editorial mind. But it is interesting because performances, for example, you, you know, if an actor is generous with their range of takes, like I, can, I could cut, for example, scenes of a film where you wouldn't even know that that was the same actor in the same role because they're just giving you these extreme ranges. And, uh, and that, I love the fact that you get them, but if you made the wrong choice, their performance would be a roller coaster. Editing is a, a very uh, organic, emotional job. You have to trust what you see and hear and how it affects you emotionally, uh, and that's what gives consistency. I want to go back to Chris Nolan a little bit later, but first of all, let's talk about you growing up in Australia. Um, where did you grow up? What was your exposure to film and TV when you were young? And did you ever think that that would be a career for you? Hmm. I thought Skippy was very clever. The fact that Skippy could get letters out of the letterbox and then tell the ranger that Sonny was in trouble was particularly enthralling to me. Um, no, I grew up, yes, I grew up in Sydney on the northern beaches. Um, my parents, well, actually, and I immigrated from uh, England when I was two. My father was an optical effects supervisor and my uncle owned a film lab and they immigrated to Australia under the sort of um, whatever the government incentive was back then. A lot of it had to do with, uh, long story, my brother was a terrible asthmatic and in the early 60s, uh, that was a very dangerous problem to have, especially if you were in England because of the weather. So they all decided en masse, hey, let's uh, move across to a better land, being Australia, which I thank them for endlessly. Um, and then my father and uncle were in the film industry and um, as I was growing up, I kind of, I don't think I was fully aware of what they did, but... I was always interested in movies. I loved going to the cinema, to the drive-ins, the local drive-in. You know, watching Lawrence of Arabia with my parents was life-changing, I think, as a young guy. Um, and then I, even in high school, I was on the film team or whatever and we went out and shot this amazing uh, short but we forgot to load the film properly. So it was only amazing in our own heads because when it came to develop it, it was blank. <laughs> Oh, no. But, that hey, masterpiece is lost forever. Not the first time that's happened, I'm sure. And then when I left school, I, uh, I said I wanted to join the film industry and my father made some calls and, and got me... Um, it was actually at a time where there were very few jobs running in Australia. It was like a mini depression in the film industry. And I was like, oh, great, good timing for me, thinking I was going to end up flipping burgers. And uh, he you know, dutifully kept ringing around and then uh, found a post-production company that needed a junior. 
And it was my lucky day because that very small post-production company called Film Production Services, which is long since gone. In Crow's Nest, right? In Crow's Nest with Alan Lake at the helm had these amazing, you know, I I don't even think he noticed. (laughs) It was Peter Weir and Bruce Beresford and uh, I had a great career where Uh, start where you were in a small facility so you had to know everything if you wanted to remain employed and I was very interested in everything. The difference probably between Australia and America is you become, in America you become very specialised and and when I started being lucky enough to travel to America and work I was blown away by how what I knew which was certainly a bit of everything uh, which has served me incredibly well over the years, they didn't know. What they were were like career, lifelong, uh, like I call it a very narrow band of of experts because there was so much work and you could do that. And, of course, when you're doing that, you become particularly good at it. And I'd come over and steal and pillage all of their ideas and go back to Australia and say, hey, I met a music editor. And they'd look at me and go, a music editor? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> And then, of course, now we have music editors in Australia. and You probably had no idea as a kid then that you were working with the seminal greatest filmmakers in the world, if not, you know, Australia alone. Um, What did you get out of that experience, you think, uh, with each of those individuals? What did you learn? You're absolutely right. As a kid, you've got no idea. Like I'm working, you know, walking into rooms with Peter Weir and people like that and I'm just listening to what they're saying doing what I'm being asked to do and only years later realising, oh, my God, I was working with geniuses, you know, and, you know, in Peter's case I had a very long career with him doing a lot of work on his films over a a lot of years. But what you – I mean, what I was getting out of it was really their their aesthetic, their taste, their everything, what they like about movies and that's – why I'm loving the fact that in editing is such a long career path because when you get down to where I am now, it's all about uh, like a Rubik's Cube of, of solving mysteries and problems and, and trying to make things paste correctly. And, and you use all of this skill set that you get over a career. I'm certainly not foolproof. I mean, there's plenty of times I sit with my like staring at the screen going, uh, yeah. <laughs> Not quite sure how to make that work. But, you know, it all comes to you eventually. Okay, so could, can you tell in the editing room if a movie's going to suck or not? <laughs> uh, yes. Mostly uh, you can tell. Uh, but what I've said to all of my assistants and the people that work with me is no one sets out to make a bad movie. You're you all launch off hoping that it's going to be great. Uh, Not all movies are created equal and not all movies work. But don't take it personally. Just do all the best work you can on whatever movie you're on. And I think I learned some of my best skills on the worst films that I worked on simply because they take just as much effort. You know, you can't give up, in other words. It's like you don't ever downplay a film that's not the greatest film ever. You use every possible trick you can get to get it as good as you possibly can. 
When you started out, you were credited in different ways. You were a sound designer on Bangkok Hilton. You were sound effects editor or sound designer on Burke and Will's Dead Calm and The Piano. How do you go from sound to editing picture only? Uh, I think because in Australia uh, I was doing both. <coughs> I was an assistant film editor and also doing sound and then I became a sound supervisor and a sound designer and but I was always interested in picture because I'd learnt both skills and to me the skills weren't separate. I never quite understood, again this comes back to the specialist thing, that I could cut a film and I could do the sound. And in the very early days of uh, Australian filmmaking, the picture editors cut the sound. Like the sound, there wasn't really a sound editor per se. I never saw a great difference and it always surprised me where I'd work with a director and a lot of them actually have looked at my credit list and I did get jobs based upon because they love sound a lot of directors are very into sound and they can see that I used to be highly into sound and some of the films like Dead Calm and The Piano were internationally acclaimed sound movies and then they see that I've worked on a lot of big you know internationally acclaimed films so it's like wow you get the package and to me, it's a natural package. I like doing a lot of sound work as I'm editing because I, I need to prove the concept of whatever idea it is that we're all having. I need to know it now. I don't want to wait and then find out that grand idea that was going to save everything, in fact, is a you know damp squib. So both music and sound to me are so interrelated. Uh, I think, you know, it's it pays dividends if you're interested in both. And you should be interested in, obviously, music because that's another one where if you don't have a clue about music, it can be a, a very detrimental to what you're doing. I know. You did a lot of movies with Peter Weir. Was it six or seven, I think? Yes, I think seven. Uh, Master and Commander was the last one. No, The Way Back. Oh, The Way Back. Love that movie. Yeah. And then you went on to do... I think seven movies with seven Chris movies Nolan. Seven movies with Christopher Nolan, yeah. Those are the two probably biggest, strongest relationships you've had with the filmmaker in your career. Can you talk about how each of those relationships came to be as strong as they are and, and maybe the differences and the similarities? Well, with Peter, I basically came in contact with him when I was a kid. And as a kid, I, you know, was, was trying to do little bits that, were on his films and then I was like a second assistant editor on The Year of Living Dangerously and then they bumped me up to associate editor. Um, not that I was doing that much editing on it but I but then I went on to do the sound effects editing and over the time Peter, who's very, um, you know, an incredible uh, filmmaker, even though you don't understand what's happening, guys like that, they just notice who's doing what and what they like and what they don't like and, and whatever. So as the years went by, I sort of was just continuously moving along until I was like co-editing and then eventually editing and then the only editor. Um, so that was like an evolution of over my entire life basically. And with Chris, it was uh, – the difference was I'd edited, just finished Master and Commander. Um, the people that I knew here were all saying, you know, you've got to get an agent in Hollywood if you want to work in Hollywood. And I was like, we don't have agents in Australia at the time. And I didn't really quite see the point, but whatever. I paid attention. I went and met an agent and um, 
who I still have, Melanie Ramsayer from Gersh, fabulous. And she, just as we were finishing Master and Commander, she said, you know, are you interested in working on a Batman movie? And I said, no, because Batman was about as far out of my wheelhouse as I could ever imagine. And she said, oh, I think you should think about that. And because um, this director at the time, young director, is showing great promise and he's, you know, a lot of the agents are talking about him and he, he uh, did Memento and then a remake of Insomnia. And so I, they sent me those films and I watched them and I went, okay, you know, this guy's clearly cool. But he was in England and, and I had to wait an extra couple of weeks in LA, which I had my family with me and we were all very excited to go back to Australia. And I don't know why, it was very out of character <laughs> for me. And I went, okay, I'll, I'll wait the 10 days or whatever I had to wait when he was due to be interviewing in Los Angeles. And he came over and I went and met him and we didn't talk about Batman at all. We just talked about films and... It was one of those interesting because I was imagining he'd just be hitting me with, and I, what I thought I would fail at was, you know, so what did you like about Batman when you were a kid? And it was like nothing, um, <laughs> you know, all of these kind of films, you know, you watch them all. No, <laughs> I was thinking, yeah, this is my fastest way out of an interview, and uh, but we didn't. We talked about great filmmakers, great films, you know, had a long chat. <clears throat> and then um, didn't, you know, I had no idea. I just, the interview ended and I went back home and I think I said to my wife, yeah, that was a waste of time waiting because I said he, we got on really well but it was a, I just didn't have an understanding of what that meant as far as like am I going to get the job, have I got a chance. I flew back to Australia and as we were walking up to our house that we hadn't been in in like nine months, I can hear the phone ringing. So I put my bags down, open, unlock the door, walk in and I pick up the phone. It's my agent. She goes, well, you got the job. And I went, you're kidding me. That's bizarre. But fine. If you want it, it's yours. And, she, and I said, when do I see a script? And, I, and she said, ah, there's the, uh, there's the rub. Uh, they want you to read the script. They're offering you the job. So if you like the script, the job's yours but you have to fly to London. They'll pay for it to read the script. One of those high security, you're in yeah, a lock room yeah. and hand it back? I'm feeling bolshy. I said, I'm not flying to London to read a script because we were, by then I'd been nominated for an Oscar for Master and Commander and we were flying, we had to get go back to LA for that whole brouhaha. And then they said, well, we'll f they'll fly you from LA to London. And I said, well, my wife's with me. And then there was only a two-minute pause and they said, no, they'll fly her too. And I went, okay, I love America. <laughs> <laughs> so I flew to London for like, I don't know, 48 hours, read the script, had another meeting. It was quite brief because they were in pre-production. Again, I don't think we talked about the film. <laughs> and uh, other than I said, I did like the script. Because, you know, Chris is like, you don't get more A-level writing than Chris. Because I remember reading it thinking, oh, my God, what if it's like really oh, Batman doing, like I'm, maybe I won't like it. And I read the script and I went, wow, that is, that's a tight script and really well written. And, that, and then we just went on after that. Um, he just sent me the scripts and like the prestige 
was after that. And I just read that script and I, I actually said that's the best script I've ever read in my life, bar none. Wow. It just – and I still stand by that. It's probably the most perfect script I've ever read. It did turn into a pretty great movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean it wasn't a huge – it wasn't designed to be a blockbuster. It wasn't like that. But just from a reading standpoint, I was just like blown away. And uh, and then, yeah, the rest is history. He just – we've worked together. We have a shorthand of working and, um, yeah, it's, you know, ending with – well, not ending, but the last film being Dunkirk. Which was the film that won you an Academy Award after – that was your third nomination. Yeah. Was your first for a Master and Commander? Yes, and then uh, one for The Dark Knight and then one for Dunkirk. And Dunkirk was three times lucky. <laughs> How was that night for you? Yeah, I, I – look – I mean, you're not an actor. <clears throat> it's a different – I no, would imagine it's a, a different, different experience. I actually, you know, I would rather be in another country, like to be perfectly honest. It's – it's one of those things that there's so much – you try to control everything, you know, coming up to it, but there's so much publicity. Warners were really doing a, a good push on that film and we were being shipped all around. And I'm also working on the film I'm sitting in doing. So it's like, you know, at night doing Q&As and all these kind of things. And, and I think I was just – you're running on adrenaline for like what seemed like 10 weeks or something and then it culminates with the Oscar night and by then you're ready to pass out and <laughs> and then you go through all these emotions you because you're watching all these little weird telltale signs thinking oh yeah I've lost it you know because the based on who the winners were well you... based upon we went to England and the BAFTA went to Baby Driver came back to LA and then I was fairly convinced I was going to lose at that point, which is what I've normally felt because the other films were up against, you know, juggernaut films that were very popular and also had come out much closer to the Academy season because a lot of the bigger films that I work on, of course, come out in that summer period and then you get hit at the last minute with your slumdog millionaires and your damn you slumdog and, uh, you know, the, the Hobbit films where basically, you know, Peter Jackson almost single-handedly turned around the fortunes of Hollywood with three of the biggest hit films. And you're up against it. You look at it and you go, yeah, there's not much chance. And then with us, Dunkirk had come out in the summer and by the time – and we were riding the complete wave of, oh, this is a lock, this is a lock, this film's just going to blitz it. But by the time we hit – Academy time, out comes all the Academy films. And then, you know, the chat just buries you basically, uh, which is fine. I mean, that's, that's you know, how it goes. And, uh, but anyway, the result was I was sitting in the, uh, in the Oscars and my name got called out and I had no prepared speech because I just didn't want to do that anyway. So the jinx in it? Well, for the jinx and also I just wanted to respond however it hit me and which I think is more interesting to me and to everyone rather than just walking up and pulling out a card and then staring at a card and saying a pre-prepared speech uh, I just thought I'd like to just feel it more than than write it and and that's what I did and it was very enjoyable although I did forget to thank my son and luckily caught that in the uh, they have a, a thank you cam off stage 
thank goodness. Otherwise, I wouldn't have lived that down because I thanked my wife and my daughter with everyone else. And I walked as I walked off the stage because I saw the gigantic wrap it up sign and my brain locked because mm. I'm so used to them turning the mic off because people talk on. And I just thought, oh, no, I'm toast. Anyway, they have a thank you cam afterwards, and which I knew about, so I was safe. But. Good. <laughs> just to talk about the Aussies that you've worked with, I know it was really nice the night we, we met at the G'day USA gala and you went and talked to Heath Ledger's parents that you had worked on two hands. Yeah. And then when you got to work on the Chris Nolan movie, you had seen uh, Heath again on that set. Maybe you could share that story. And also, I guess people think that you know all the actors in the movies, but you're, you're sort of separated a lot, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I meet the actors, but it's always fairly briefly. Uh, Heath, interestingly, A, had, had an amazing, I think, memory for people. And we'd spent quite a bit of time, you know, at the picnic table at Spectrum having lunch when he was a, basically a kid from Perth, you know, munching away on a sandwich while we were doing ADR. And uh, over the years, because I, I bumped into him at a few things, he'd always come up to me and say hi. And I always thought, well, that's such a cool guy to, to, you know, and then, of course, his career kept getting bigger and bigger and I'm thinking, oh, well, that's the last time we'll ever interact. And yet still, you know, he would spot me and, and walk over and and very um, warm, friendly guy. But the, the interesting one on the set of uh, The Dark Knight was I'd gone to Pinewood uh, to meet Chris. We were going to discuss something that was coming up. And I, obviously I've been editing the film and, you know, Heath, Heath is in it. And he was in his nurse's uniform with the full Joker makeup. And as I'm walking towards the stage, he's walking probably back to his trailer or whatever from quite a distance. So you can imagine the vision that I'm seeing is this strange-looking thing in a nurse's uniform because I hadn't seen any of that scene yet. And he's just like, hey, and he walks up, gives me a big hug in full makeup. And I'm like, okay, that is really an interesting event. And uh, we chatted and had a laugh. And, and another time we bumped into each other when he was shooting the kitchen scene with the mob where he, he puts the pencil on the table and bangs the guy's head on the pencil and it goes through his eye. I don't know how we got that through the ratings board. He came over and he was chatting to me. And, and Chris runs a very tight ship when he's shooting. You know, there's no chit-chat. It's very serious. So Heath's standing there again in makeup with his suit on. And we're, we're having a chat and I've got one eye on Chris. Like, I don't want to slow anything down. And, uh, you know, you can see they're getting ready to shoot. And, and Chris looks up and he says, I think something to the effect of, you know, when you're ready. <laughs> and uh, he says, I'm just getting some tips just wait one second and he kept talking like just to <laughs> piss him off basically <laughs> and I'm looking at Heath going you don't know what you're playing with <laughs> let's let me back away <laughs> but he was fine everyone we all had a laugh it, it was uh, it was good he's was truly a, a warm and lovely guy and one of the greatest actors and, and his career was just set to you know barnstorm it was like you know, the dailies of him as the Joker, we we knew, you know, when you said you know when you're on something, we knew we were on something because every time he walked on, it just lit and, yeah. Well, you started out with all the great uh, Aussie actors 
from the yeah. 70s and 80s. And now you've had a chance to work on films with a lot of the new ones. I mean, mm-hmm. you did Suicide Squad, you worked with Hugh Jackman, you've worked with Heath Ledger. What do you think it is about the Aussies now where we can't even keep track of how many of them are doing so well over here? And not just the ones in front of the camera, mm-hmm. but there's also a lot more um, behind you um, mm-hmm. that are, you know, getting Kirk Baxter and people like that yeah. that are that are working over here. What do you do you have any theories? I think the world's just a, you know, global village. I think it felt strange to me when I first started coming here. And I was definitely, um, certainly, you know, there were plenty of Australians, but I felt like I was one of the very few. And you were treated that way in a way, like you were a bit of a novelty and, you know, with the adorable accent. And you don't get that as much now. And it's this, and I like it. I think you know the information and the and the exchange between all the filmmakers in the world is also what makes it such a cool industry. Like you know, I've worked with Polish directors of photography, and you know, a lot of British crew, Americans, Canadians. You know, we worked in the Philippines. It's you just everywhere, and you learn something from everybody. And it's a, it is. Filmmaking is an international language and I think the more that we can interact with each other, the, you know, the more you learn. And every country has a trick. Like their methodology is interesting and I love looking and trying to pull all the good, whatever I see that's a good method and process, I'll take it. And I think for the actors and directors, it's the same thing. I think any Aussie actor that finds themselves in Germany you know, working on a German film, will walk away from that going, wow, that was cool. I would have never thought of that. Or Italy, you know, it's just the Teutonic way of looking at something as a way f- from the Romantic to the, to the French, which is, you know, again, a, a world apart, which I think you just, it's all experience gaining. Is there um, a chance you'll get to make a movie back in Australia ever again? You know, you never say never. It's just about I kind of – I don't really think about the next movie. I just work on the project I'm on and and I'm very fortunate that I get offered films and and wherever they are or however they are, you you try to pick them based upon what's interesting and what's out there. And, uh, you know, you don't – you. I just like working, so I don't want to fall into a hole either of like, you know. Waiting for something. Well, waiting for something because also I've learned that some of the best projects either don't happen or get put back and get put back and get put back. And so I just think I'd get bored to death. It's like I I just want to work. So because every film has its, its challenges and... And every film's interesting and every genre's interesting, you know. So, but yeah, I mean, I I would go back to Australia in a heartbeat. It just de- depends on where I am, what I am. And uh, yes, unfortunately at this point what the budget is. <laughs> <laughs> and last quick question, just about the way you edit with work with directors. Do you guys sit together a lot of the time while you're editing or you edit on your own and then they come in and look at it? It's very, it, all directors are different. Uh, and the range is complete from um, coming in very rarely and giving notes and wanting the overview to being there every minute of the day. It, it's 
there's no rule and it works well either way, I think. It's, it, and again, because that's their process. My process is editing. Mm. So is Chris there a lot? Chris is there a lot. Chris is very uh, – he's incredibly focused and his, um, he, he's just puts a window for each operation and, and when he's editing, he's editing. You know, and when he's – we're working on the music, we're working on the music and when we're doing the sound, we're doing the sound. And with other directors, everything overlaps. So Dunkirk was such a unique experience too because you had that – that sort of ticking clock, you had three different timelines going at the same time. I mean, would, did that feel like a different experience as an editor when you were working with him on it? Uh, only uh, in the fact that a lot of the timelines are built into the script. Chris's idea was the ticking. Uh, but all of those are very complicated ideas. And the proof as you're editing is can you run it? and have an audience go with you. And we do a lot of, in his case, not testing with big audiences, but a lot of just weekly testing with small groups of trusted people who aren't in the industry, by the way. And you just get the feedback. You just play the film and go, because, you know, they are very complicated films. And, and what you're looking for is, you know, enjoyment and uh, even if they're completely perplexed, as long as they're perplexed yet enjoying it and and their takeaway is is good. Whereas, you know, the last thing you want is A, boredom, B, so confused they don't know what they're watching, or C, they just don't like the movie. Um, and again, depends on genre-based movies. I mean, you can't ask someone who hates a particular film to come and look at a film. Because that's pointless. It's like, you know, if you don't like, for example, a war-style movie, even though Dunkirk actually brought a lot of people into it who were, generally speaking, would go, oh, I don't like war films because it wasn't bloody. It wasn't a gory film. Whereas there are a lot of war films that I don't want to watch because I don't like that. And you're kind of pointless to bring me in on it because I'd be sitting there going, okay, I feel sick. I don't want to see that. I mean, I know bad shit happens, but I don't want to see it. You don't want to edit it. <laughs> no. I mean, there are films that I wouldn't edit and I have turned down based upon the content of the script. Whereas I'm not saying they're bad scripts. I just – and it's rare, but I just don't like the content. And it's like I imagine myself spending a year – coming in, watch, working on a film that I would never want to see. So what is the point of that? Yeah, I'm not going to do anybody any favours. And it's not that it would be a bad film. It's just so wrong for me that they should go and find themselves someone who is like all excited and wants to do that kind of film. Because you can't, you know, you can't bend yourself that much. I mean, you do when you're young because, damn, I would have edited anything when I was a kid. <laughs> Plenty of cases in point there. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm a, I'm not super picky. It's just, it's the quality of the writing and the people involved. Then, you know, that's half the course. And last question, you're, uh, you're working currently on the X-Men movie. You've, you've done the James Bond movie. You've, you've done a few franchises now. How does that feel different? And, um, do you feel a lot more weight in terms of how fanatical the fans are when you're working on those kind of genres? I try not to think of it because to me, I think one of the things that worked well with Chris and I is I wasn't a fanboy. 
And so I'm trying to make a movie that I want to see. But you've got to be, obviously, if you put a film out and the fans hate it uh, on these films, well, that's a disaster as well. But I don't see why you can't do both. I mean, for someone who doesn't know a franchise, you should still be able to watch it. And even if it isn't the films that you would trip over yourself to see, you still get something out of it and, and you get to the other end and go, wow, yeah, I didn't think I would enjoy that. And I think The Dark Knight was a turning point for me because I had people telling me how much they liked that film who I would never have guessed in a million years they would have seen it. Like they just did not seem the people. And that's, you know, that's making a good movie because it just works but you don't imagine yourself going to a movie like that or of that topic. Well, thank you, Lee Smith, so much for being an Aussie in Hollywood. Thank you. And for talking to us. And we can't wait to see X-Men Phoenix, Dark Phoenix. Dark Phoenix. All right, thanks, Jenny. Get back to editing now. <laughs> I've got to, yeah, I've got to catch up now. <laughs> so one of the reasons why I love doing this podcast is because I'm able to introduce everyone to some of the lesser-known Aussie success stories in Hollywood. We've got so many great artists behind the camera too. Producers, directors, cinematographers and editors. And they're all a testament to how highly regarded Aussies are in every area in the business. That's all for now from Aussies in Hollywood. Aussies in Hollywood was presented by me, Jenny Cooney, and recorded in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Audio production was by Nick Slater and executive producer was Jenny Goggin. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the app or look me up on iTunes. Music.